Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once again to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. The word of God for the people of God. This week I've been thinking about a moment that happened many years ago. I've been thinking about the first time I ever got yelled at during a Bible study. Many years ago when I was a student in seminary, I served at a little country church in North Carolina. And that church was filled with farming people and they were some of the kindest and most generous people you could ever hope to meet. And I will always be grateful for the ways in which they put up with me. Because I was very young and inexperienced, and I really had no idea what I was doing. But they were used to student pastors, and they were gracious, and they were patient, and they were willing to work with and able to work with what I was able to give. And they gave me opportunities to do lots of different kinds of ministry. I got to lead the Vacation Bible School. I got to do some youth ministry. And every Sunday morning before worship, I got to teach uh, an adult Sunday school class. Most of those Sunday school lessons I taught back during that time in my life were were pretty forgettable. Most Sundays I just showed up and regurgitated whatever the professors had been teaching us in seminary that week. But there is one Sunday morning conversation that stuck with me. There is one moment from that Sunday school class that is still vivid in my memory. I remember that that Sunday we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples one day asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus teaches his disciples this prayer that we said just a a moment ago in worship. And that Sunday morning, I remember I was really driving home for that Sunday school class the importance of being part of a church. I was driving home the point that, that it's important for our spiritual health to be in relationship with other followers of Jesus. It's important for us to be part of a worshiping community. And I said to the members of that Sunday school class, I said, look, Jesus, Jesus puts it right up front in this prayer that he teaches his disciples. The very first word of the Lord's prayer is our, not my. We don't say my father who art in heaven. In heaven. We say our father who art in heaven. In the very first word of the Lord's prayer, Jesus reminds us that we grow closer to God as we grow closer to one another. And I went on like that for a while. And as I was talking, there was a woman in the class who was becoming visibly agitated. And she was shifting around in her chair and she folded her arms across her chest and her face just kept getting redder and redder and redder until finally she couldn't hold it in anymore. Finally, she leaned forward and she looked at me and she said, wait just a minute. She said, my father is a good 
Christian man. And you can't tell me that he is any less of a good Christian man just because he doesn't want to have anything to do with the church. My father is a good, moral, upright person who knows the difference between right and wrong. He believes in God, and my father is just as close to God in his pickup truck as we are in the pews on Sunday. My father is just as able to pray and talk to God on the golf course as we are when we are in the church. My father is a good Christian person. He is able to be spiritual without being religious, and don't you dare tell me otherwise. She was shouting by the time she had turned the volume all the way up by the time she got to the end of her speech. I remember vividly every word that she said. What I don't remember is how I responded. And that's probably for the best. That's probably, that's probably me showing myself a little grace because knowing who I was and what little experience I had at that time in my life, chances are I responded in a way that was clumsy and probably not all that helpful. Even so, that moment, that conversation stayed with me through the years. And I found myself thinking about that moment last Sunday morning when I sat in with the Sunday morning water cooler Sunday school class. Nobody yelled at me in the water cooler class last Sunday. Well, I'm very grateful for that. I appreciate I appreciate that's not They're not a shouty bunch, and, and so you don't need to be afraid of getting yelled at in the water, water cooler class. Now, the reason I found myself thinking about this moment last Sunday morning was that Laura Bollinger, the, the uh, sort of de facto leader of the water cooler class, started off the conversation last Sunday morning by asking the class this question. She asked the class, is it possible to be spiritual but not religious? And boy, we had a good conversation about that question. And lots of different perspectives and viewpoints and experiences got shared. There were some people in the class who said, absolutely, it is possible to be spiritual but not religious. And there were other people who said, no way, if you say you're spiritual but not religious, you're either less spiritual than you think you are or you're more religious than you care to admit. Uh, And the conversation went back and forth like that for a while and nobody was shouting. And then it was my turn to share. And, And when it was my turn to share, I decided to share a little bit of what I've learned in the years since I got yelled at in that Sunday school class. I said, here's here's what experience has taught me over the years. I said, these days when people say I am spiritual but not religious, most people, what they mean by that is I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. I want all the God stuff. I want all of the hope and the comfort that comes from believing in God. I want the spiritual experiences and the prayers. I want the moral teachings and the sense of a difference between right and wrong. What I don't want is I don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. And I told the Sunday morning water cooler class last week, I said, if we are willing to listen and ask follow-up questions, chances are we're going to discover that there is a good reason for that. Chances are that at the bottom of that not wanting to have anything to do with the church is somebody who looks an awful lot like me. So many people have been hurt by church leaders. So many people have been hurt by church teachings. So many people have been hurt by the church 
then it's no wonder there are so many people all around us who say, I want to be spiritual, I want to have all of the God stuff, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. I don't want to have anything to do with the hatred and the prejudice and the violence and the exclusion that is so often part of the package when you sign up for organized religion. And the thing is, and this is a painful pill to swallow, the thing is they are not wrong. This morning's gospel reading is an excellent case in point. In today's gospel reading, we have a story that that proves the point, that illustrates that the hatred and prejudice, the exclusion and violence have been a problem of organized religion for as long as there has been organized religion. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus and his his disciples are passing through the land of the Samaritans. Jesus and his disciples, of course, are Jewish. And if you grew up going to Sunday school, then you probably know that at that time there was a deep and an ancient hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans had a lot in common. They had a common history. They had a common family tree. They had a common culture and a common heritage. And they even worshipped the same God, but they worshipped that God in slightly different ways. They prayed slightly different prayers. They had slightly different versions of the Bible. They worshipped God in two different temples that had been built on two different mountains. And those small differences were enough to lead to a hatred and a prejudice that was able to overwhelm and overpower all of the things that Jews and Samaritans had in common. But of course, Jesus was never one for paying attention to those sorts of things. Jesus was the kind of person who loved sticking his toe across a line that somebody had drawn in the sand. And so one day, Jesus took his disciples on a hike through the land of the Samaritans. And as they were passing through the land of the Samaritans, they came to a place where there was a well in a shady spot at the foot of a mountain. And Jesus decided that he wanted to take a moment to rest at that well. So Jesus sat by the well, and he sent his disciples on ahead. He sent his disciples on to to get some lunch in the village that was up ahead. And as Jesus was sitting there by the side of the well, a woman, a Samaritan woman who lived in the village, came out to get some water from the well. And she and Jesus end up having a conversation. And and we're going to hear more about that woman, and we're going to hear more about that conversation next Sunday morning. But this Sunday morning, I don't want to focus on the woman. I don't want to focus on the conversation. This Sunday morning, what I want to focus on is the well. Because there's a story behind that well. It's a story that Jesus and the woman both would have known. And the well where Jesus met the Samaritan woman had a name. It was called Jacob's Well. And the story went that this well had been dug by one of the most important figures in all of the Bible. The story went that this particular well had been dug by a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob was the son of Isaac, and Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, to whom God had given the covenant through which God was saving the world. And Jacob was an adventurous young man, and he decided to go off into the world and make a name for himself, see if he could make his fortune. And Jacob largely succeeded at what he set out to do. He became a very wealthy man. He became a man with many sheep and many goats and many camels. He had a great big family. Jacob got married, and he had 12 sons and one daughter named Dinah. Jacob eventually reached a point in his life where he had everything that he wanted except for a home. And finally, Jacob decided it was time to settle down. And so he packed up his sheep and his goats and his camels, and he packed up all of his sons and his daughter Dinah, and they hit the road. They traveled and they wandered, and finally one day Jacob saw a shady spot 
at the foot of a mountain. He said, this is it. This is the kind of place that my heart has been hungering for. This is where I'm going to finally settle down. And so he purchased the land. And then Jacob and his sons started doing what anybody back in those days would do when they were getting ready to build a house. The very first thing that you do is you dig a well. And so Jacob and his sons rolled up their sleeves and they started digging the well. And while Jacob and his sons were hard at work, Dinah had a little bit of free time on her hands. And so she decided to go exploring. She decided to go and see if she could meet the neighbors and check out the nearby village. And so Dinah went off to the village. And as she was walking through the streets of the village, she met a young man named Shechem. And the next thing you know, Shechem and his father are standing in front of Jacob asking Jacob's permission for Shechem and Dinah to be married. But before Jacob can speak up, Dinah's brothers butt in. And Dinah's brothers are furious. Dinah's brothers respond out of religious hatred and religious prejudice. Dinah's brothers look at Shechem and they say, How dare you lay your filthy Canaanite hands on our sister?" They said, we are grandsons of Father Abraham. We have been circumcised according to the covenant that our grandfather made with his God. And the only way we could ever consider allowing our sister to marry you is if you and all of the men in your village were to be circumcised as we are circumcised. And what follows is a really remarkable moment in which we discover just how badly Shechem wants this marriage to happen because Shechem and his father agree to the deal. They say, okay, and then they go back to the village and they somehow convince all of the men in the village that it's worth it. It is worth the pain. It is worth being circumcised in order to form an alliance with this new, powerful, wealthy neighbor. And what follows is one of the strangest scenes in all of the Bible, that village hosts a circumcision festival. All of the men in the village are circumcised together all on the same day. What they don't know is that Dinah's brothers never intended to allow this wedding to take place. That night, while all of the men in the village are weak and in pain and exhausted, Dinah's brothers, Jacob's sons, attack the village. And they murder, they massacre every man in the village. And the next morning, Jacob looks out and he sees his sons coming home covered in blood. And he says, my sons, my sons, what have you done? Now we will no longer be able to stay in this place. Now we are going to have to get up and move away to another place and start all over again. And that is exactly what Jacob does. He packs up his sheep and his goats and his camels. He packs up his family. He packs up everything and they leave that place behind. And the only evidence that they were ever there is a pile of bodies and a well in the shade at the foot of a mountain. And this story is the perfect illustration of why so many people don't want to have anything to do with organized religion. This story is the perfect illustration of the hatred and the prejudice and the violence and the harm that can be caused by organized religion. And this story is also the story that helps explain why I and so many other people are still here. 
This is the story that helps to explain why I and so many other people haven't yet given up on the church because there is a seed of hope planted in this story. At the very end of this story, a miracle takes place that is so small and so quiet that it's easy to miss if you're not paying attention. At the end of this story, Jacob and his family leave that place, but the well remains. The well stays behind. The well keeps on standing, and that well keeps on serving the people of that village from generation to generation. That well provides water for weary travelers who are passing by. That well provides water for Jews and Samaritans alike. And one day, some 1,800 years later, that same well provides water and a meeting place for Jesus and a Samaritan woman. That well, which was a reminder of hatred and prejudice and violence and pain, it becomes the meeting place, the site, the tool that God uses to bring healing and peace and comfort to the Jews and the Samaritans and to the people of that community. And there is hope in that miracle for us. What we learn in this story is that God... God is able to work through broken people and God is able to work through broken religions and God is able to work through broken institutions. God is able to use broken tools to tend God's garden. God is able to play beautiful music on broken instruments. God is able to pour the water of life into broken vessels. And that's why we are spending our Lent this year digging wells. Because we have hope that one day we will be able to have the healing and the peace and the comfort without the hatred and the prejudice and the exclusion. We have hope that one day we can be the church God dreams that we could be. We have hope that God will be able to work with what we are able to give. We have hope that one day we will stand before Jesus And we will discover that though it may not have seemed like much at the time, the good we were able to do lived on long after we were gone. Let's pray. God, when we have messed up everything else, when we have heard your word and interpreted your word and lived your word incorrectly, in a way that excluded, in a way that caused pain and harm, God, when we get everything else wrong, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to dig wells, to provide clean water for people we will never meet and for generations to come. That sometimes, maybe even in spite of us, this world would know your healing. This world would know your presence. This world would know your peace. In Jesus we pray. Amen.